Support for this podcast comes from the Fletcher School of Global Affairs at Tufts University. To start your future as a global change maker, you must have context across fields like international business, cybersecurity, energy policy, and more. Don't just study global affairs, shape them. Visit fletcher.tufts.edu. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. So, I ask everyone to stay calm, all the people to stay calm. The process is working. The count is being completed. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. What is happening? Really? When President Trump said that just yesterday, it is simply not true what he said. So on this Friday of this monumental week, at this point in American history, once again, we must strive to understand what is becoming of this nation. As you know, I've claimed certain states, and uh, he's claiming states, and we can both claim the states, but ultimately I have a feeling judges are going to have to rule. It is the will of the voters, no one, not anything else, that chooses the president of the United States of America. Joining us today is Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Also with us is Ron Suskind, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. His latest piece for The New York Times is The Day After Election Day. Ron, welcome to you. Okay, well, Jack, I'm going to start with you today. Your take... Your first thoughts. I was going to ask about where we are at the end of this week, but there's no end to anything. It's just this particular moment uh, in history uh, in, of this week. What do you make of where the nation is? Well, uh, it may be that we have averted um, uh, a coup against democracy. We don't know. Uh, the results are still, are still uh, coming in. Um, but what we saw last night was a dangerous uh, demagogue. I think he's best described by the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Mark Rasco, who called Trump a threat to the existence of the republic. That's pretty much what we saw last night, the president saying the people aren't going to decide, the judges are. Throw out the – stop the count. Uh, that's just, that's That's – Terrifying. What's even more terrifying, of course, is this same person who's been who he is all along got the vote of nearly half the electorate. They signed on for the 20,000 plus false statements. I'm avoiding lies. Uh, They signed on for Charlottesville. They signed on for Helsinki. And their capacity to swallow his his propaganda is a standing danger uh, to the future of this country. Uh, you know, our friend uh, <coughs> Tim Schneider at Yale puts it, post-truth is pre-fascism. Uh, it's, it's frightening when people will swallow 
lies. And, it, you know, with Yates, we have to wonder, and what rough beast his hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? What demagogue after Trump? can come and ignite and incite and, and bring, to, bring to life a, a, an electorate that's willing to swallow uh, quantities of lies that are almost mm. unimaginable. Swallow or disregard? Because I, I, I do wonder if uh, there are, people are f- focused on the, the issues that matter to them most. Uh, we, we heard. <laughs> we heard. A dozen hours of voters talking through those issues, Jack. And, and it, one of the conclusions I came away with is, is that um, the the demagoguery, the disinformation, the distortion, the lies that you're po- uh, pointing out, which the president did did indeed uh, state la- last night from the White House, standing behind the seal of the president of the United States. Uh, I think just as you as you point out, there are enough Americans who disregard or don't really care about that, that whatever happens in this election cycle, uh, we do need to sort of hold the mirror up to ourselves, I think, very, very strongly for a long time to come. So hang on here, Jack, for just a second, because I think we have Ron Suskind uh, on the line I'm, with us. I'm back. Hello I'm back. there, Ron. Okay. So, <laughs> hi, Magna. Hi. hi. Sorry about that. No, it, it, something happened. It's okay. Something, something happened. Is something a ha- happened. It's a hashtag for 2020, let me tell you. But, but yeah. so, Ron, w- w- I want to lean a lot on you on um, the reporting that you've done recently, because you had this terrific piece in the New York Times called the, called the Day After Election Day, where you quoted um, multiple anonymous sources, and we should say that these were anonymous sources, most of whom were Senate confirmed and have regular access to the president. So those are That's right. a couple of key things here. Um, and you've been talking to them this week uh, on and after Election Day. What have they been telling you? Well, it's interesting, Magna. They they predicted quite a bit of this. You know, what I did with the story is I realized that that you know, as it is with many public figures, that we may not really know uh, Donald Trump the way certain people do know him. And those are the people that I wanted to connect with and, and build these sorts of relationships with. And the the folks very close to him, closest to him, are the ones that are most terrified about what Donald Trump is capable of doing and what he may well do. So uh, in this week, many of them are saying, see, see, I told you. I told you he is at this point unbound. Uh, He is uh, beyond the controls that many senior advisors uh, attempted to place on him by standing in the way of some of his actions and some of uh, his ideas, which were profoundly reckless. Uh, what they say to me, and I just got off the phone with one this morning, is that um, uh, he will never concede. Uh, he will uh, move down this path, uh, which is one in which he will likely um, uh, stir the pot, attempt to activate um, a core of his supporters who are deeply loyal to him, um, and uh, and essentially test the boundaries of what they will do under their oath of loyalty to him. Um, Remember, he is, um, he has behind him uh, what I would say is the only asset he's ever fairly earned, 
which are is this really an army of people who um, who believe everything he says and will act um, uh, on his command. Uh, will even act uh, based on what they think he wants. Mm. Um, that's a big crowd of people. Now, if you take the total number of, of Trump voters and cut them in half and then in half again, you're starting to get down to this this deeply loyal core who uh, who uh, connect uh, their identity to uh, being a Trumper. You know, I said, um, you know, I've covered politics for 30 years and Certainly not in my lifetime have I ever seen anything like this. And historians I talk to say it's, it, it doesn't have a clear antecedent in American history. I mean, there was no one who was wearing Bill Clinton's colors. Mm-hmm. No one who claimed as the core of identity, I'm a Bushy. Uh, but there are people like that for uh, Trump. And that's what everyone has been watching uh, inside of the government, people who have – knowledge of Trump and also have knowledge of uh, other countries in which we have situations where an individual uh, has his or her own army uh, within the borders of the nation. And that's part of what the the model they're looking at now um, as to what this week will mean for that community um, and how Trump will or won't activate them. He holds all the cards. That's the difficulty now. Okay, so Ron, the question let me, is which will he drop? Yeah, let me just jump in here because uh, your point is taken about President Trump holding all the cards regarding the loyalty of his supporters, but within the government, he is not the only figure, of course, right? We yeah. have multiple parties, we have senators, we have representatives, we have the appoint you know appointees. Uh, so there is a role for them to play. As well. So, for example, I just want to play. Here's here's a representative, Adam uh, Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois, uh, following the president's uh, press conference from the White House yesterday. Here is what uh, the representative said on CNN's New Day. What we can't do is to start saying over and over election fraud, election fraud without evidence, because in 10 years, people this is the kind of thing that people then say, well, my vote doesn't count. Why do I why do I vote? They're disenfranchised and it leads to a dissolution of the union. So you know, Donald Trump may not have to worry or even Joe Biden may not have to worry about election in 10 years. Uh, but I have a family I have to worry about. And so I'm going to fight hard for that. Jack. For every representative uh, Kinzinger, there's a, a Senator Lindsey Graham, a Senator Ted Cruz, uh, a, a Senator Rick Scott. I mean, it seems as if there aren't enough uh, people within government right now who are speaking up. No. And, uh, you know, I think as somebody said in the morning edition, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham uh, should be he's free now. He's got six years. He's just been reelected. You know, he should be out in the fields and going, I made it. I can now be myself again. Well, it turns out himself is a is is still a toady to to Trump, even as Trump's uh, star wanes. And of course, why is this? Well, partly it's because of the media, uh, the propaganda network they're they're surrounded by. Here we have Sean Hannity the other night 
Uh, do you believe these results? Here we have uh, Carlson talking about corrupt city bureaucrats. They seize the outcome at the they they seize the election at the from the hands of the voters. Laura Ingraham is the fix already in. As somebody said in the Washington Post, these people, these Fox people, are, are, they're laying down the covering fog of lies for the Trump campaign attempt to halt the vote count. So uh, the, you could say Republicans are free of may soon be free of Trump. They're not free of Fox. Well, Jack and Ron, hang on here for just a second. Uh, we are taking a look at this monumental week in American history, looking ahead to what might come next. We're also trying to step back and get a a sense as to where this nation is historically and where where we all want to move, what direction we want to move, hopefully together. So we'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're taking stock of this historic election week in the United States, trying to understand uh, what might happen next. And I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Ron Suskind is also with us, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist and author. Uh, his latest piece in The New York Times uh, was published on October 30th called The Day After Election Day. And Ron, in your piece, I just want to quote a couple of lines here to set up a little bit of tape from um, from this week, because in this, the senior administration officials that you talked to, again, Senate confirmed with regular access to the president. Uh, people told you, you know, that the lies easily outrun the truth and, quote, the president then substantiates, it gives it credence, gives it authority from the highest office. Folks even told you before uh, Election Day that Mr. Trump will claim some kind of victory on November 4th. That indeed he did. This could come in conjunction with statements uh, supported by carefully chosen, quote, facts that the election was indeed rigged and that indeed we hear happening in terms of what the president is saying uh, as the week progressed as well. And then some of these folks talked to you about the sternness of the American people, right? Sterner stuff. Yes. So with that in mind, I just want to play a little bit of tape here. This is Clark County, Nevada, Registrar of Voters, Joe Gloria, on Thursday. I am concerned for the safety of my staff. We're putting measures into place. I feel safe. We're going to be okay. We're going to continue to count. We will not allow anyone to stop us from doing what our duty is in counting ballots. So that is the Registrar of Voters in Clark County, Nevada. And you know what? A lot of people are thinking about this, about the individuals that actually make the electoral machinery in this country work. We received this message from a listener. Hello, my name is David Smith. I'm calling from Belfast, Maine. And I'd like to send out a a shout to the country about our town clerks, poll workers. To me, they are our heroes right now. And 
to me it feels very patriotic and requires courage, really. Now, Ron, it is quite inspiring to, yes, say, to, to hold up the heroism of everyday people in small counties across, this, across the United States. But at the same time, did the people that you talk to, by, by, by pointing to those individual Americans, are, are, are those folks in government throwing up their hands and saying there's nothing more that we can do surrounding the president? No, no. You know what? It's interesting because it's a debate, Magna. You know, there are folks in the story who say, I think the American people will will stand up and step up to this moment. Uh, They are resilient. They they if if the one thing one of them said that both red and blue agree upon is um, uh, they do want their votes to count. Uh, I think in general, people have a bad taste about a rigged game or, um, you know, a contest determined by an official's call, if you will. Uh, They want it to be a fair fight. I think it's deep in us to want that. Um, And so I think what's interesting about this moment is, in fact, uh, how people are turning to the vast community of Americans uh, to say, um, uh, step up and stand up and we're with you. Uh, because it, this is a debate. This is a debate that's happening as we speak with really the future of the country uh, firmly fixed uh, um, on history's fault line. Uh, I mean, right now you're seeing uh, folks who are being seen as heroes uh, saying, uh, I'm here to make sure this process uh which is uh, uh, an extraordinary process of the people's will being heard, carries through to its appropriate finale. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the back and forth that's happening between massive disinformation and grabs for power, which is what the president is doing, and uh, a vast community of others, including so many people who voted, saying, I want this to be a fair fight. I want to have an outcome desperately. Mm-hmm. I want to be able, frankly, to get on with my life <laughs> and to have this drama. With, it seems the future of everything I cherish, that of the nation, in the balance, at stake. Yeah. And that's what I, I hear. And so you have inside of the story people signaling out through their quotes, really to the people you're talking about, Magna, yeah. saying, we're with you. Don't think the president is the government of the United States. He, in a way, is carrying forward disinformation that we're trying to counter, uh, which is why we are not briefing up to the Oval Office. We're briefing out to Ron, and he is handing this to you in this big, giant uh, story in which our voices are heard, though, of course, they remain uh, anonymous because many of them are quite terrified. Um, You know, the, the president has demanded loyalty oaths he is on the hunt for the disloyal at every minute. Um, so Ron, so can I just way, jump, can I, I can yeah. I just jump in here for a second? Because this is an important, just brief point to make. When you say terrified, I mean, it's one thing to be terrified about your professional circumstances, but I thought I remembered in your story that some of them were even concerned about their physical safety. Is they that- are. They are. They are. I mean, just think of it this way, Magna. If I'm a, an official of the government who is deemed disloyal and then outed as such by the president of the United States, again, who has this enormous core of loyal supporters. I basically have a target on my back. Mm. And that's what some of them think. 
Um, On the other hand, they want to stay in the government and a way to report out, which is what they're doing now this week and next week, and they'll continue to do uh, in our relationship, mine with them, uh, to uh, essentially get the word out as to what's happening inside the great beast of the U.S. government, as they expect Donald Trump will use the organs of government to support his continuation in power, mm. which already he's done some of, and he will do more of that in the, in the days and weeks to come. That's their expectation. So, Jack, I just want to turn to you briefly here, because uh, as, I, as I hear Ron describing um, this moment right now and, and the, the, the focus on the, the dignity of the daily work that um, a local election officials uh, and, uh, and Americans helping see this, this voting process through, that while like, there's this national celebration of that, at the same time we have this, this chaos, <laughs> this chaos in terms of that's pulsing through the system that's, that's leading to some people questioning the legitimacy of the process overall. I hear profoundly strong echoes in terms of how this, how this country has viewed this pandemic because we mm. spent months and months and months celebrating, applauding, uh, uh, thanking medical workers on the front lines. And yet there's this fracture in the American psyche nationally such that we can't actually take that same energy and control the pandemic, according to facts, according to science. There is a bizarre divide in this country that is going to be with us for, I, I don't know how long. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary that that should be ca- the, the case. And I think the paradigm is, is just right. You know, uh, someone looked at 300 uh, different counties where there is uh, uh, a recrudescence of of COVID really coming back. And they found that 99 ca- counties among them were s- the strongest uh, Trump counties. And at the same time, the strongest for COVID people were all for Trump and they were denying or seeming to deny COVID, at least the people, if insofar as the people at his rallies represent that larger group. And it seems that they do. So yes, people are, you know the the rejection of science of fact uh is 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 frightening and and the and the submission to a kind of cult uh uh is, is just just unnerving and on the other side the people as that man said that that uh, election man said doing their duty they are doing it and they're saving the republic one vote at a time well, let's listen to Maryland's Republican governor, Larry Hogan. He spoke to PBS's Margaret Hoover last night. Everyone in America wants a free and fair election. They want every single vote to be counted. It's a, it's a cornerstone of, uh, of our whole process. Uh, every state is, I think, working really hard to make sure those votes are counted. But just frivolous lawsuits uh, to drag uh, this out, uh, if, if uh, there's no merit to them, absolutely is wrong for the country. Well, joining us now is Beverly Gage. She's professor of history and American studies at Yale and the Brady Johnson professor of grand strategy at Yale as well. Professor Gage, welcome back to you. Thanks, Megna. Uh, do you, are you seeing kind of a, a, a realignment um, being played out in, in real time before our eyes this week? I think we are seeing something of a realignment, though these things don't happen in a single moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, They really happen over time. But certainly the identity of the Republican Party is 
uh, up for grabs and seems to have moved in Trump's direction. And that is a significant shift in terms of what the Republican Party has uh, stood for, um, and in terms of particular of who's going to be in charge there. Um, I think during Trump's term, we've seen a real battle among Republican elites, um, lots of Republican elites who have left the party. Um, and in that sense, for control of the Republican Party, this is absolutely a, a pivotal election. And so can we divine at all what might happen next based on, say, for example, um let me just well actually let me just do it, say it this way, Professor Gage. Um, the the challenges right now, um, both in court and uh, in terms of what uh, the president himself is saying about the legitimacy of the vote, um, are the the number and intensity of those challenges have we seen have we seen them before or are they unprecedented? Those really are unprecedented. So it's not that we've had no contested elections before in American history. It's not that there have been challenges to the legitimacy of those elections, whether you're talking about 1860, which we should remember was a presidential election that helped to spark uh, an actual civil war, uh, or 1876 or 1960. We've had these very close contested elections Um, I think what's unique about this moment is what Trump himself is doing. So if we go back to 1960, when uh, you had an extremely close election between Nixon and Kennedy, uh, and Nixon very, very narrowly lost amid accusations of voter fraud in places like Illinois and Texas, uh, Nixon decided himself to act very, very differently. But it's worth noting that even in that case in 1960, the myth, the story that that election had been stolen from Richard Nixon became one of the kind of driving myths of the Republican Party in the 1960s. And it's one of the things that ultimately, you know, explains Nixon came back in 1968. Um, But some of his paranoia about voting and then uh, leading up to Watergate, I think, does date back uh, to that sense of grievance that even, uh, even in that case, when he stepped aside, that sense Um, that something had been stolen, that there was um, uh, a lot of resentment. That myth lived on. And I think that that myth, whatever happens institutionally, is certainly going to to live on in this case as well. Okay, well, let's listen to a moment from uh, Thursday in Nevada, uh, where NBC News and MSNBC correspondent Jacob Soboroff tried to get uh, the Trump campaign's Rick Grinnell to provide evidence of the voter fraud that the Trump campaign claims is happening. Can you talk about the evidence? You're claiming Fox thousands of illegitimate votes here in Nevada. Fox What's the you evidence? Should, you Fox. should go in and ask the question of the clerk. No, 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 no. Which you haven't you done You guys yet. just made and the so claim. No, in fact, you also said there's no election observers. There's Democratic and Republican election observers inside, Mr. Grinnell. Former DNI Grinnell, acting DNI. Where's the evidence of the fraud? You haven't presented any evidence of fraud. Where's the evidence? They've presented no evidence of fraud. So that was from yesterday. Ron, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, you may remember that in one of my stories in 2004, that reality-based community, that phrase popped up from a Bush advisor. You know, we've been experimenting with this uh, drift from the factual, the evidentiary, the empirical for many, many years. And that debate back then was one in which I had with the advisor. I said, look, there are, there are facts and reality will assert itself. And uh, the response was, uh-huh, that's kind of not the way the world works now. When we act, we create our own reality. It circles the globe 
10 times before you have breakfast, Ron. Um, and that's what wins the day. That shapes behavior, shapes attitude, even shapes action. And so what you're seeing are many generations down that path now where they are not even acknowledging the need to show evidence, simply the charge, simply the accusation uh, that there is uh, wrongdoing uh, is plenty uh, in a time in which so many people are divorced from the ideas of fact and of evidence, as Hannah Arendt says, you know, in Origins, where they believe uh, nothing is true and everything is possible. Um, that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing an experiment that Trump is conducting as to exactly how far that can go. And that's, um, and that's what you're hearing right now yeah. in, that, in that debate with Rick Grinnell, who was head of the, the – he was the director of national intelligence for a short time, a leading figure of the government, but he will not acknowledge uh, these most basic things. Ron, I have to say here um, that, that I, I actually I'm, – I'm so glad you reminded us of – that phrase, reality-based community, because I do remember back in 2004 when you published that story, it was like it was kind of an earthquake to to what? see in print uh, a, a, a governmental official actually being so honest about like, hey, like whatever reality. And to your point, we have come so far from now uh, from that even now now. Are we at a point where it's not a knowing manipulation of reality, but rather a true al- alternative reality and, and, com- and competing realities? Well, it is now a fully formed and competing reality that is utterly unmoored from the foundations upon which uh, empiricism – like I said to various advisors, I said, look, age of reason, empiricism, I have a history behind me, this reality-based community. Oh, yes, we know that. But that's what's now over. We have moved uh, beyond that. We are unencumbered, Ron, by those facts. And that frees us in all kinds of ways. You're playing checkers. We're playing meta chess. And that's kind of what you're seeing now. I mean, interestingly, we're on shows. I've done a a few shows, and we're talking about that's absurd, like the night the president on election night said similar things. It's fraud. It's being stolen. And and I said, look, the community that is maybe the most important and uh, and consequential here, they're not watching this show. Right. They hear the president's words, and they say, you betcha. All I need. And when he went on that press conference yesterday, you know, he actually made a fairly sober and coherently woven case uh, full of prove the negative impossibilities and, and, and lots of uh, hearsay that's hard to check. And, uh, and anyone who decides not to dig any deeper to find out if there's truth would believe it. Yeah. And that's trouble. Trouble, trouble. Well, Ron Suskind, Jack Beattie, and Professor Beverly Gage stand by. I want to hear a lot more from all of you when we come back. We're, we're taking stock in terms of where the nation is on this Friday in this monumental week in history. We'll be back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. 
How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On Monday on the show, we're going to have what's essentially a continuation of of this conversation today. We'll we'll keep our eye on all the news that develops over the weekend. And and we're going to talk about whether the 2020 presidential election, the political toxicity, the disinformation, whether that's done long-term damage to American democracy and perhaps more importantly, people's faith in it. So what's your answer to that question? Has this election done long-term damage to this democracy? Let us know what you think at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. That's for Monday's show. Uh, Regarding sort of taking stock of this week, we heard from On Point listeners uh, throughout the week. And for example, here's a listener in Ventura, Pennsylvania. These people who voted in Pennsylvania under the law, as it was at the time they voted, that said that they their ballots would be counted up to three days after, after um, November 3rd, if they were postmarked correctly. If the Supreme Court throws out those ballots, can all of those people sue for having their voice, their vote nullified? So that's one question. The second question is, who would they sue? Good questions. We'll try to find the answer to those, at least in some show in the coming days and weeks. Here's listener Pete from Maine. Yes, I trust my state to accurately tabulate and report our votes. And that is my short answer. The long answer is that I trust the states, all the states, to have the appropriate mechanisms in place. I subscribe to the trust but verify principle of independent observers and chain of custody of ballots and ballot boxes where they exist. But I'm much more concerned about disinformation campaigns that influence large numbers of voters before they go to the polls. That's On Point listener Pete in Maine. I'm joined today by Ron Ron Suskind, Jack Beatty, and Professor Beverly Gage. And Professor Gage, let me me bring you back in here. what you heard Ron talking before about sort of the evolution of uh, American politics from the, the observation of reality-based politics to, to sort of where we are now. I'm just wondering if you, what you thought of that. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge the many things that are happening in this moment. And in some ways, you know, the worst thing that Democrats or liberals or members of the reality-based community could do at an extraordinary moment like this is to spend all of their time talking about Trump and disinformation and the dangers and kind of pulling uh, defeat from what appears to be the jaws of victory. Um, and so I think it's worth as a matter of strategy for the Democrats thinking about that piece, that many people are distressed and disappointed by what's happening. But in fact, there's another story about what is taking place, which is, as your caller suggested, that uh, the votes are being counted, 
the system has held something extraordinary, which is the defeat of a very popular incumbent president, uh, appears to be happening, uh, that Kamala Harris is the first woman of color in the uh, vice presidential slot. So there are a lot of things going on simultaneously here. And I think one of the pieces um, that's so uh, powerful about uh, who Trump is and how he behaves is the ability, even in a moment like this, um, to be the center of the conversation, to bring the attention back uh, back to him. Uh, but, you know, the fact is he never would have been uh, dangerous and he would never would have been president if he weren't popular. Um, so the fact that he is still relatively popular um, is, uh, it seems, shocking to many people after what's happened over the last uh, four years, and particularly the last year, but mm, I'm not sure that the level of of shock uh, is quite appropriate to to the situation. Yeah, so I'm actually very grateful that you said that because I was thinking that uh, there are probably many many listeners out there right now who are who are like Megna, just stop. You keep hyperventilating over the future of American democracy. You keep clutching those proverbial pearls. I'm not really much of a necklace wearer, but you, you get my point. Um, because because. To your point, Professor Gage, the actual system system is functioning right now. Votes are being counted. And yes, there are legal challenges to, to in some states, but those legal challenges are working their way through a court system. So if we take away um, the informational chaos – should we act should we be feeling quite calm quite confident even even quite proud in the of the robustness of american democracy professor gage I think there's a good case to be made. And I think part of the um, reason that there's so much anxiety is that this is going to take a while. Um, and I think that we knew that it was going to take a while and there will be real challenges. Um, those challenges are not going to be um, easy, right? Whether you're talking about disinformation, whether you're talking about court challenges, there will probably be some bumps along the road. There will be wins and losses. Uh, Trump may not concede. I think all of those things may in fact happen. But they're not definitive, right? They're not the end of the story. Um, and in fact, right, something pretty extraordinary is happening uh, that would push back against them. Jack, what do you think? Well, that's such, that's such a welcome uh, dose of, of reality. Uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, when we look at, uh, at Trump, and, and I think you said that so well, Professor, even at this moment of seeming uh, triumph for democracy, that is, the people ha are speaking, the president manages to tarnish that, to pull that back into into the the morass that is his uh, his selfhood uh yeah uh it, it it something good is happening in the sense that people are speaking and if if mr biden is elected there is a there is somebody there who could not be more different uh from mr trump in terms of his his character and in his uh, and and in terms of his fealty to science and to his, his determination to uh, not ignore this uh, pandemic, but to somehow uh, defeat it and contain it. So uh, bravo for reminding us of the half full part of this and more than half full part of this uh, moment. Mm. So, Ron, uh, again, leaning on on your sources here and and your reporting earlier in the show, you said that in terms of what actions the Trump campaign takes next, it's it's President Trump himself that holds all the cards. So have your sources kind of shared with you more specifically what they think might happen? 
say, over the weekend, next week? Yeah. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of legal battles. I think we're going to see the votes coming to their finale, uh, the president attacking them as illegitimate. Uh, those attacks uh, are hollow. They will be proven as such uh, through the system of, uh, of the courts. Uh, Trump will rant. Uh, he will he will, uh, and some of the sources have said this, and I, I like this. It's, look, I, I agree with, with what uh, Beverly said about uh, this extraordinary moment where the, almost a sleeping giant of democratic participation uh, has been awake, awoken. And people are saying, well, hey, wait a second. My, my butt's on the line here. Uh, I need to engage in this process and show uh, what – democracy is about, and it's about me going to that ballot and having my will heard. That is extraordinarily uh, uplifting about what we're seeing here. And so when they think about the president going forward, um, I think most of the, the sources who know him well uh, think that, that uh, Donald Trump may be actually thinking of an exit strategy here, which is all to the good. And setting up various particulars and circumstances for that exit. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, they, one of the, the sources this morning said something interesting. They said, you know, the fact is a lot of people, you know, talk a good game, but don't actually act. And this is a person who's been in war zones leading mm -hmm. troops. <laughs> he said, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who you think will step up and maybe. Um, you know, be actors on the stage of history. Mostly they're viewers. They, when rubber hits road, they're not there. And, and in a way, I think Trump may uh, have that proven as he uh, attempts to summon uh, his so-called army of loyalists and he gets uh, maybe less of a response than some people are mm. expecting. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think... Look, as I said, all living things bend towards sunlight. It's deep in us. I think there are going to be folks on all sides who do feel the sunlight of this enormous eclipse that's Donald Trump starting to move or, or preparing to move away uh, from our consciousness, our day-to-day, -day, morning, noon, and night consciousness. Yeah. Um, and I think Joe Biden's speaking to that beautifully, actually. Well, so, so, Professor Gage, let me hear you on this, because I imagine that that D Donald Trump and Trumpism, however we might define it, whether it remains in the White House, he remains in the White House, or, uh, or not, he, the, he, he will continue to be an attention-grabbing figure. In American politics, I, I actually I, I take Ron's point about perhaps the, the eclipse starting to move off a, a little bit. But I, you know, I wonder about the, the land that has been left behind when the sun shines down on it. it's going to look a little different. Right. And so, you know, can, can you tell me a little bit more about, for example, within the Republican uh, or, or party itself? Is there how would you characterize the, the realignment that's happened there that will be with us as Americans, regardless of, of what happens in, in the next week or two. Yeah, I think Trumpism is different from Trump. Mm -hmm. And that is here with us to stay. Um, I guess the figure that I think about as a historian is someone like Joseph McCarthy, 
um, who, you know, of course, led this uh, anti-communist crusade in the early 1950s and was a very Trumpy figure. He wasn't president. He was senator. So that makes a big, big difference. Um, but he was someone who knew how to manipulate the media. He was someone who was able to lie. Uh, and though we think of him as someone who was roundly repudiated, he had an incredibly powerfully identifying, passionate core around the country um, who were really distressed in 1954 when he was finally censured. And in fact, that story about uh, how the country had turned against the hero Joseph McCarthy uh, became one of the kind of founding stories of some of the conservative reorientation that took place within the Republican Party over the years that followed. So uh, William F. Buckley creating National Review in 1955, that was partly in a reaction uh, to Joe McCarthy's center, the founding of the John Birch Society, etc., um, on up into history uh, that we know into the 1960s and beyond. So that I think we are almost certain to see and uh, what the institutional home of Trumpism will be, um, how widespread it is and what role Trump himself plays uh, from this point forward, I think is a little uncertain, but we're, we're, we certainly haven't seen the last of it. Uh, but just to hear a little bit more of the historian's perspective here on, on what we saw happen this week. I, actually, Professor, I hadn't asked you about your response to the president's press conference at the White House yesterday, where, quite frankly, he trashed the U.S. electoral system. Mm. I, I, as a historian, how did you how did you see that moment that that kind of language was coming from the president of the United States? I thought it was a sad moment. I thought it was an unprecedented moment. Um, and I thought it wasn't a, a surprising moment exactly, but it was shocking to see it happen. Jack, so let me, let me turn back to you. Your thoughts on what Professor Gage has been saying? Well, uh, yes, uh, it, 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 it wasn't, as with so much with the, the Trump presidency, uh, things can't are shocking but not surprising, and and that's sort of been been priced in. But the the career of demagogues has, you know, has has been relatively short. They're burnt out. They've left embers and 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 traces for the future. What's frightening now is that there's an infrastructure uh, of demagoguery that wasn't quite the same. In Westbrook Pegler, I remember from my youth, was a McCarthy columnist, but. In in the main, you didn't have anything like uh, Rupert Murdoch and the Fox Empire and that and that infrastructure of uh, of the, that will keep keep the basilisk, if you will, of Trumpism alive uh, for a long time, and um, we just can't blink that. Mm. Ron, we've just got about a minute left uh, to go, so I'm going to give you the last word here today. Well, you know, I had a great conversation with a couple of real wise people that were once atop the government uh, just over the weekend. And they said, look, the great challenge for America is to do what we do, which is make repair. We have a great self-correcting process here at democracy. That's part of its power. And to find a way uh, to bring this vast community uh, that are now supporting Donald Trump and some of the things he's done uh, into a kind of conversation in the American fold. That's the great challenge of, I think, the years ahead. You know, we can't really survive as divided as we are, and I think everyone recognizes that. And the question is, what now will we do now that it's been so clearly revealed to us in this time 
Um, that's that's the yeah. challenge I think everyone faces on all sides, and I think that's one they can agree about as a challenge. Well, it looks like we have just a couple of seconds more. So, Professor Gage, do you share that sense, that almost Jeffersonian sense of America's challenge and capacity for renewal? I would like to share it. So I will go ahead and say yes, because to say no would be quite... <laughs> uh, and the only Thank thing you, that Beverly. I would Thank add... you for sharing that. <laughs> the only thing that I would add is that it's not just about people talking to each other. It's about the institutions we have to mediate those differences. Politics is always going to be full of fractiousness and difference and deep, deep divisive difference. Um, And I think we want to look ahead not only to these conversations, but to how we want to think about structuring that, how we want to be uh, rebuilding institutions that maybe uh, mediate those conflicts instead of exacerbate them. You see how I manipulate my guests to always end with the better angels, our better (laughs) angels. So Beverly Gage, (laughs) Professor of History and American Studies, at Yale. Thank you so very much, Professor Gage. Thanks, Megna. And Ron Suskind, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist and author. We've got a link to his piece, The Day After Election Day, which appeared late last month in the New York Times. Ron, thank you so very much. A great joy. Great joy, Megna. And by the way, that link is at onpointradio.org. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Jack, I am so privileged to have you as one of my guiding lights during this most monumental week. Thank you so very much, Jack. Thank you very much. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.